Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And she boldly enters the house of this Pharisee who really doesn't consider himself a sinner. And what's the difference in a really religious person and a completely non-religious person? A religious person is someone who's better at hiding their sin. Someone who has traded sins that are obvious for sins that are easier to hide. And that's what he was doing. And, and I want to make sure that doesn't happen to you. In today's broadcast, we have Doubters and Debtors, which is our new two-part message from Pastor Sam. We are in Luke chapter 7, and we will take up in verse 18 and finish the chapter. And we will be considering the message sent from John the Baptist to Jesus and the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. So let's listen in. Luke 7, 18 to 50, Doubters and Debtors. We read here in Luke 7, 18, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Those things were the things that had been happening, the centurion servant being healed, the uh, widow's son being raised from the dead. And John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Pause with me and consider what's happening to John and why. John is going through a season that, well, we will all go through at some point or another, and that's a season of confusion and doubt. He can't really put together at this point how it can be that Jesus is the Messiah, though he knows he is and has identified him as such. He can't figure out if he's the Messiah, and he must be, he has to be, what am I doing in this prison? Now, John's in a prison, not because of his unfaithfulness or because of his sin, but because of his faithfulness to deliver the message that God gave him. That message was very simple, easy to memorize, a little difficult for some people to receive. The message was repent. And he didn't really care who you were. He would preach it. You'd say, hey, John, how's it going? He'd say, repent. And I, hey, you got a word for me from the Lord? Repent. And when Herod took his brother Philip's wife, her name was Herodias, well, John got in Herod's face and said, repent. Well, Herod didn't. Instead, he imprisoned John. And now in a prison cell, John begins to doubt what he had earlier been certain of and bore witness to. Now, here's the most amazing thing about all this. John had had a revelation from heaven, if you recall, the father had spoken at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He not only heard the father, but he saw the spirit descending in the form of a dove. And he had already been told the one upon whom you see the spirit descend and remain. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. So the very next day, John bore witness. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we have to ask, how do you go from behold the Lamb of God to are you actually the one or should we be looking for another? John was confused by his circumstances. He was confused by the situation he found himself in because it didn't gel with what he knew to be true about the Messiah. Now, this was a common problem among Jesus' first century disciples because they had the word of God. God, excuse me, they knew what the Bible taught 
the Messiah would do. What they didn't know is that Jesus was going to come the first time to suffer and die for our sins. And then the second time to rule and reign over all uh, mankind, that he came the first time as a suffering servant. He returns as Lord of lords and King of kings. Well, in any case, John is going through a season of doubt. And, and it's comforting to me, having been through a few of those, to know that great men like John had his doubts as well. And to see how Jesus deals with doubters. Now, you know John is not the most famous doubter. We actually have another guy. We call him Doubting yeah, see, you already know. And if you didn't, now you do. Doubting Thomas. Why do we call him that? Because after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the other disciples, Thomas was missing. And then they said, hey, it's true. We've seen him. He's risen from the dead. And Thomas is like, no, nah, unless I can feel the prince in his hand, unless I can feel the wound in his side, I will not believe. How does Jesus deal with that unbelief? He shows up and says, here, handle me. See it's really me. But it's interesting. We give Thomas a bit of a hard time for not believing. And yet in the latter part of Luke in chapter 24, it turns out that when Jesus had appeared to those without Thomas, that they were frightened and thought he was a ghost, a spirit. And he said, hey, don't be afraid or be at peace. A spirit hath not flesh and blood or flesh and bone, excuse me. Didn't have any blood right then. But uh, flesh and bone, as you see, I have. So, so my point in this is that they all doubted and Jesus for them just said, feel, touch, handle. It's really me. And then to Thomas, feel, touch, handle. It's really me. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, I've had some doubts. Why doesn't he show up and do that for me? Well, first of all, you wouldn't recognize him anyway, would you? They'd seen him before. They knew him. They watched him be crucified. They knew the wounds were in his hand and in his side. And the point is this. There's another way he deals with our doubts, and it's ultimately how he's going to deal here with Thomas's doubts and, and with John's doubts and, and well, it's the way he deals with just about all of our doubts. Ultimately, he'll point us to what we know to be true, remind us of what we were once sure of and say, that stuff's still true. Nothing has actually changed. Then I was looking back at the father of the faith. You know him, Abram. We know him as Abraham. And, and he's the prototype. He is the best God has. So he's like, here's the guy. When I told him to wait, he waited. When I told him to go, he went. When I told him to, whatever God told him, ultimately Abraham did it. But Abraham's faith grew over time. He goes from a guy who actually at one point when he's going down into a town where the people are pagans and he's like, oh, these guys don't have the fear of God in them. He tells his wife, who's over 60 years old, and this is actually, I guess, in part a compliment to her. These guys are going to see you and want you and take you and put you in the harem. So would you just do me one favor? And she's like, well, what do you want? And he says, just lie for me, would you? Now, listen, fellas, let me give you a tip. This is not something you want to ask your wife to do. Lie for me. Because why? Because I'm scared they're going to take you and kill me. Well, that's the father of the faith, you see. That's, that's our best we got to offer. Why? Because God takes very ordinary people or sometimes subordinary. Is subordinary a word? Mark's an English teacher. He, he gives me a lot of slack, but I'm not in his class. But uh, you're in mine. I like that. But... Uh, but anyway, you know, these guys, well, they faltered in their faith. But this is the same man that ultimately will be willing to offer up his son, Isaac, 
knowing that all the promises of the kingdom and the nation and the Messiah have to come through him. How do we go from, hey, would you lie for me to I'm willing to sacrifice my, my son? It's walking with the Lord, seeing that the Lord is faithful to his word, planted in our hearts, bringing it to our remembrance. Well, that's exactly what we get to see here. Well, here's how John is dealt with by our Lord. In verse 21, he says, at that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you've seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus addresses John's confusion by reminding him of things he already knew. See, John knew the scriptures and Jesus is, well, he's going about doing the very things that Isaiah 35 and in its context, it's a messianic prophecy. John, of course, knew this. So he says, just tell John what you see and hear. And John will put it together. He'll remember, yeah, Isaiah 35, that's exactly what, what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. So he is doing what he's supposed to do. And then Isaiah 61, this is the passage that he read and, and explained in the, uh, the synagogue there in Nazareth where he grew up. This day, this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It's the same exact scenario. His mission statement, the proof that he was and is the Savior was in him doing what the scripture said the Savior would do. Now, here's the, the latter part of it. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. He's saying, here's what I'm doing. Remind him of it. He'll recall the scripture and he'll be assured and secured. But, but here's the thing. Tell him not to be offended at what he doesn't see me doing. In other words, everything the Bible says the Messiah will do, Jesus will do. Why? He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. But, but we can't stumble over the fact that it's, it's not happening on our timetable or the way we thought or in the order we had been thinking. We just have to trust that he is going to do what he promised to do. Well, when the messengers of John, verse 24, had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see, Jesus asked? A reed shaken by the wind? Of course not. John was anything but vacillating. Again, he was a rock. He stood firm and called his generation to repentance. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. Where was John? the king's prison. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Now check this out. In the very same way that Jesus assured John by pointing it back to the scriptures, what he knew to be sure and true, that's what he does now. After affirming and validating John's character and his calling, he points them to the prophetic scriptures. This is he of whom it was written, verse 27, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, Jesus is doing two things here, and, and, and the second might not be as obvious, so I want to make sure you get it. The first is he is saying, hey, he is the fulfillment. John is the fulfillment of this prophetic scripture. But that means Jesus 
is also saying, and I am, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior, because this passage, I'll send my messenger before your face to prepare your way before you. Before who? The Messiah, the Savior. And John had already pointed out Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I say to you, or for I say to you, among those born, among women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John, by the way, the last of his dispensation. If I ask you, when did the Old Testament close? Most of you know Malachi 400 years before Christ. But here's the thing. The scriptures tell us really the Old Testament dispensation closes with John. The law and the prophets were unto John. So while the canon of scripture Old Testament concludes with Malachi, the work of the law and the prophets continues unto John who identifies Jesus and from Jesus on it's a whole new ballgame. Why? John will be one of the last to die in faith that looks forward to the cross. See, he's not going to get out of that prison and, and this is an important point. Jesus validates his character and his calling. He, he, he explains that he is the forerunner but he never never suggest that John should expect to be getting out of that prison or don't worry, I'll send someone, we'll break you out or we'll post some bail or anything like that. He encourages him, he affirms him, but he makes no promise to rescue him. And John will ultimately die as a witness and as a martyr for testifying to the truth and pointing people to Jesus and standing firm on the calling that was in his life. But, but, um, the point is this, the law and the prophets until John. What's the difference in our dispensation? We look back at the cross. It's a done deal. It's a finished work. It's not just a promise of salvation. We have the proof. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day as he said he would. Well, when the people heard him, verse 29, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. All this is saying is that they sided with God against themselves. God says, you're guilty, you're a sinner, you need forgiveness. And they said, amen. We confess that's true. And then they publicly testified to that reality through their baptism. That's what the baptism of John was about. It was a public profession that you were guilty and in need of forgiveness and you believed God was going to send the one who would atone for your sin and, and provide salvation. But the Pharisees, contrast, verse 30, and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. Now, this is simple, but a lot of people miss it. What was the will of the Lord for the Pharisees and lawyers? It was the same will that he had for everyone, that they would repent of their sin and that they would publicly testify to that repentance through baptism. It wasn't so much the, the neglect of baptism, but the refusal to repent, to acknowledge, to confess. They were sinners. And by the way, the scripture could not be clearer on this issue. It is not God's will any perish, but all come to repentance. And it doesn't say that, that they rejected, you know, God's will for some. They rejected God's will for them and God's will for us that all come to repentance. That means it's not his will any perish because he says so, but men will perish because they 
persist in their sin. They refuse to repent. They refuse to confess. They refuse to turn. Well, the Lord said, verse 31, to what shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus likens these guys, and he's really talking about the spiritual leaders. He likens them to children playing in a marketplace, and, and they're saying, hey, listen, we played some music and John wouldn't dance. Well, this makes sense. He is the original Baptist. And uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get it. The bottom line is they cited John as saying something's wrong with this guy. He's not friendly. He's not normal. He's always telling everyone to repent. And then when Jesus comes on the scene and he's the exact opposite personality, he's outgoing, he's gregarious, he's friendly, he's hanging out. They're like, you know, they don't like John and they don't like Jesus. Why? I'll tell you the common denominator between the two is what they were preaching. John's first words out of his mouth were, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, Jesus' first words after his baptism and temptation, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they could say, well, he's to this and Jesus is to that. And, and know what they don't like about Jesus. He, they said he's, you know, drinks and he eats. And I mean, everyone drank and ate. That's what they did. They're saying he did it to excess. Was that true? Who knows? But it's doubtful. But, but here's what they really couldn't stand, besides that he called them to repentance, is he was a friend of people like you and me, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I know most of you aren't tax collectors, but I'm pretty sure you're all sinners. And I'm sure of that because the Bible said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I haven't gotten to know you all enough to know how you sin. I just know that you sin. And you don't have to tell me. I've got enough problems of my own. But the deal is, all of us are sinners. And when Jesus befriends and reaches out to and shows his love toward tax collectors and sinners, the religious people, they're not really hanging with this. They don't really like it. And, and But what does he conclude with in this section? He says, wisdom is justified by all her children. The wise saw their need for repentance, as we saw in one of our recent studies. The wise not only hears the word, but does it. But the fool continues in his sin. Well, we go from the doubters to the debtors. And it's an interesting story because there are actually two debtors in the story. And Jesus makes that very clear in the form of a little parable he inserts. One of the debtors is a religious guy. He's a Pharisee, very conservative, very highly regarded, well-respected. They were the conservatives of the day. They knew the word I think they loved the word. They, they did their best to obey the word. The problem was is that they'd forgotten the one that gave them the word. Their hearts were far from the Lord, though they're 
testimony was they were doing all of these things for him. Well, we have Simon the Pharisee, and then we have this notorious sinner, this nefarious sinner. We really don't know her name, but we do know that everyone knew she was a sinner, and apparently not everybody, including Simon, knew that he was a sinner. Well, one of the Pharisees, verse 36, asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When the scripture points out specifically someone was a sinner, it means a well-known or notorious sinner. Everybody got that her sin was obvious. When she knew Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Now, you know, the Bible says confession of sin is a good thing, but let me give you a tip. He means confessing your sin, not someone else's. And that's what this guy's doing. See, he's like, if I was there, I'd go, hey, give your own testimony, you know? Confessing her sin, that's not exactly what God has in mind. She, by the way, has already done that, and she is publicly testifying to something that I'm certain had already taken place in her heart. There had already been well, an encounter with him, we can see that if you go through the other gospel accounts, that uh, he had offered forgiveness to a great multitude, and no doubt she was one who had received it, and her, her actions testify of that reality. Now, here's the contrast. A well-known, obvious sinner, and she boldly enters the house of this Pharisee who really doesn't consider himself a sinner. And what's the difference in a really religious person and a completely non-religious person? A religious person is someone who's better at hiding their sin. Someone who has traded sins that are obvious for sins that are easier to hide. And that's what he was doing. And, and I want to make sure that doesn't happen to you. That you don't just deal with the big stuff that everyone would say, whoa, there's no way you know, you did that or you said that or you went there. Or, there are things that before we came to Christ actually hindered us coming to Christ because we knew, even though no one told us, if I give my life to Christ, I'm going to have to give up those things. Isn't that true? I mean, maybe some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then you probably still have some things to deal with. But, but, but most of us had some things that we were clearly going to have to give up if we were going to walk with Jesus. And, and here's the thing. She lovingly and sacrificially ministers to Jesus. She weeps over him. She anoints him with fragrant oil. Was some of this behavior inappropriate? Culturally, yes. I mean, she takes down her hair and begins to, to you know, wash his feet with her tears and, and dry him with her hair. And well, in that culture, a woman would never take down her hair except before her husband. They kept it wrapped up. They, they kept themselves kind of contained. And, and so she is just like oblivious to everyone in the room. That's what we need to see. Her, her eyes are fixed on him. She doesn't care about Simon. She doesn't care about the disciples. She doesn't care what they think of her. She only cares about him. And why would that be? because she had had an experience with him. She'd been confronted with her sin and she saw 
forgiveness in his eyes and heard forgiveness from his lips. So she's doing what really all of us should be doing, lavishing our love on him, not worrying about what people are going to think of me or how they're going to perceive me or how does this look to them? But, but Lord, I just love you and I thank you and, and everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. Doubt is not something we should be ashamed of. However, many times we are, and that shame can prevent us from stepping out of it. The remarkable and comforting fact is that some of Jesus' first disciples, who personally saw and heard so many amazing things, doubted. Perhaps instead of how God or even others view our doubt, we should consider how it affects us. James 1.6 tells us, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. A wave of the sea, tossed by the wind. Jesus is our rock. He is our anchor. Addressing our doubts by asking for his help is going to always be the best way to remedy this situation. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.